You know, it was almost exactly a year ago that the Hawaii National Guard lost one of its members due to complications with COVID-19. This weekend, when guardsmen and women report for their weekend training, they'll be offered the chance to get vaccinated. There are some 5,500 Guard members in Hawaii. Interestingly, the Air Guard deadline for mandatory vaccines is December of this year, and for the Army Guard, it's actually next June. Brigadier General Moses Koevi talked to us this morning. He says he's not sure why the deadlines are different, but he says Hawaii isn't waiting. What we want to do is, is try and start this as quickly as possible. It's not so much uh, we got a lot of time, so we're going we're gonna to wait. What we want to do is get as many vaccinated as possible with the, um, the vaccinations that we have so that we can be ready and, and just increase our safety, especially since we're out there doing COVID-19 mitigation still, especially with the Delta variant. And, and we're looking good as far as the statewide because the, the numbers are, um, are going down. But we still, from, from my perspective as a commander, I want to ensure that all the personnel who can get vaccinated should get vaccinated. So Right now, where is the guard being tapped? Because you were in place for a lot of the testing in the neighborhoods. You were out there doing the contact tracing. What else are you being tapped for? We've actually done some uh, missions with the federal qualified healthcare clinics, like uh, One Eye Coast, and we did some in Waimanalo. Those missions fluctuate. We kind of downsize doing those. When we first started, that was a big mission, but right now we kind of downsize in many of those cases or not going or doing as much as we used to. But we still got those missions open in case they need us, and uh, we're doing a lot of testing support, mobile testing support still with uh, our medical personnel. And uh, on the other islands, we're still vaccinating at uh, remote vaccination sites as the counties set them up. So we're helping in many ways. One of the biggest things we're doing is still working the PPE distribution and transportation. So we got a lot of PPE that's in storage that is still being on a cyclic rate being distributed out to agencies that need them. So we're talking about personal protective equipment like the masks and the uh, sanitizer? Yeah, so it's really a Haima mission. So Haima's leading it, but uh, we're supporting with personnel to uh, assist in the distribution and storage of the items. Just basic warehouse-type activities as well as distribution. We're still doing the COVID-19 contact tracing as well, though. So we got one team specifically helping with that uh, as well. And then on the other islands, a lot of it is uh, also uh, contact tracing as well as we're still at the airports. What can you tell us about just the voluntary vaccine rates among your members? It's pretty high. You know, we're pretty good, actually. So I can say, kind of give specifics on the states, not allowed to. What I can tell you is that at the national level, we got it about 42% at least partially vaccinated. So that gives you an idea of from a national average. But Hawaii is contributing greatly to that national average. We have a lot that's already vaccinated across the force. And this month, we are going to continue the, the vaccinations as uh, time is available with the soldiers. So as we have some soldiers that are not doing the mitigation, they are back in their own jobs because we're a traditional reserve type force. We have still have the one weekend a month training that occurs. And so what we'll do is during the weekends that we have scheduled training, we'll have these soldiers and, and airmen come in and, and get uh, vaccinated. We got a little bit of each uh, weekend sometimes set aside so soldiers can come in and get vaccinated because we have units training on different time periods during this month. And that's on different islands? Different islands and, yeah, all across across the state. In many cases, what we'll do is if we have the some of the other islands come over to Oahu and train anyway. So we'll bring some of those unvaccinated persons over to Oahu uh, if need be, or we'll send a team, depending on the, the number, down to the, the other islands to get vaccinated. Or their medical personnel on island will already um, be prepared to vaccinate, depending on the 
the numbers that we have and how fast we need to work through the, the vaccination process. But basically, the guardsmen and women, when they normally report to their weekend uh, exercise, they'll be given the opportunity to get vaccinated, you know, right on the spot then. Yes, especially this month. And then um, as the next months come around, we'll have it set up so that they can get vaccinated. I understand that the guard lost, you know, one of its members last year due to complications of COVID. I'm sure that must have been um, hard. When you're looking across the board of all the soldiers and airmen, and then, then you realize that hey, one of us got got it real bad. It, it hits home to realize how devastating this virus can be, especially when you think that some of the people out there, healthy soldiers, healthy airmen, and for whatever reason, they have a they get sick out of the virus, and and sometimes it hits hard. Some some of the soldiers and airmen they they do well with it, but this one was particularly hard based off of the the death. Any other issue, you know, with positive cases or serious hospitalization? Well, I, I would say that we're kind of reflective of the, the population. So, you know, depending on this past two years, when you're looking at from 2020 when we first started a response as well as um, monitoring this, we see the percentages, I guess you could say, it's kind of reflective of, of what um, what's happening out there. I've been happy with how our soldiers actually been handling the, the infections as well as um um, trying to prevent the infections. Our, our soldiers and, and airmen have been doing the best they can with the, the mitigation measures, the CDC guidance, uh, even on missions. When we're out there, they understand how serious this is. So they've been very um, conscious of what they need to do to protect themselves. And so uh, we've been doing fairly well when it comes to the response to any infections that arise. And then, of course, you got those instances where you have the Delta variant out there that some people are getting sick and we're just assisting and, and doing what we can to those who do have get infected. Anything else, just as far as the Air Guard? No, I, I mean, as far as the Air and the Army Guard, I think we're on the same the same track as far as personnel getting sick or the way we've been handling the, um, the COVID-19 infections. So talk about any exemptions then that you might consider. Yeah, so, so we got three areas that, that we look at. One is, um, of course, medical, a medical exemption. And then there's the administrative exemption, which is the main two. But then there's also under the administrative exemption a religious exemption. So we'll process all three. Now, other administrative um, exemptions may include, for example, a soldier or airman that is about to retire. So if you about to retire within 180 days, the commander can look at it, then approve the, the administrative exemption. That's called an administrative exemption, so you can approve the administrative exemption. Other type, for example, if any, any type of other reasons, you might not necessarily retire, but decide, okay, this is my time. I've done my service. I'm going to leave. And then uh, the commander again looks at it and says, okay, yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're about to leave and understand you don't want to take the, the vaccine. So because you're leaving, then we'll, we'll let you leave uh, without taking the vaccine. And it's at the commander's level. However, for the religious exemption, there's, it has to go through a, a process of evaluation and also the medical exemption has to do the, the same go through a process of evaluation. Okay. Have you and, gotten uh, any uh, requests for exemptions at this point? Yeah, we've had some come in and we're looking at it and processing it. So the numbers are, are kind of low, but they're out there. But at the same time, I mean, it's, it's valid concerns. Right. I and mean, we take and- our soldiers' concerns seriously. So we will process them and make sure that they get the, the full um, review uh, last year when, when President Biden started discussing potential mandatory vaccinations and then Secretary of Defense Austin decided to make it mandatory. We, we kind of understood that it was coming. So we already started planning in case the order came out to uh, make it mandatory. So it wasn't like we had to start from scratch. In addition, because we had a high rate of 
soldiers and airmen already vaccinated. It's not something where it's a big movement and, and we gotta we got to start from scratch and, and make a big change in the way we've been operating. We've already been preparing for this so we can ease into it in October. So it's not like we found out last month and then now we're scrambling to uh, execute vaccinations in October. We already knew that it was coming, so we had these things planned out. And then at the same time, we've had these, these opportunities available so that when the soldiers come to uh, training, they can they can volunteer and, and get vaccinated. That was Brigadier General Moses Coevi with the Hawaii National Guard talking with us this morning about how starting this Sunday, it will be offering uh, shot clinics to its members so its citizens show, soldiers can easily get the COVID-19 vaccine. It's not clear why the Pentagon has decided on two different deadlines for the mandatory vaccines, December 2nd of this year for the Air Guard and next June for the Army Guard. Support for HPR comes from Monkey Pod Kitchen on Oahu in Ko'olina and Maui in Wailea and Ka'anapali. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application at monkeypodkitchen.com careers. You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. New information on the Navy's Red Hill fuel poop, uh, pipeline leaking into Pearl Harbor comes to light. Joining us for today's reality check to talk about that story is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra. Good morning. Morning, good to be here. Yeah, you've got a bit of a bombshell here. <laughs> you got some emails. I did, yes. Yeah. So um, to to back up a little bit, so this story was about um, a fuel leak that started at Pearl Harbor in March 2020. HPR broke the story, uh, thanks to you. And so this um, oil was being released into the harbor, um, but the Navy really didn't know where it was coming from. They thought it was maybe a historical uh, leak. There's um, a lot of soil there that's soaked in fuel that sometimes gets into the water. So um, fast forward to January. Um, It's uh, about a week or so before the Navy is set to go before the Department of Health to um, argue their case why they should get a permit. And they get these test results that a pipeline near the the fuel release at the harbor, um, the pipeline has failed. And so they try to fix what they think is the problem, and yet the pipeline fails again. Um, And so days go by, and um, they have this contested case hearing for the permit, um, but at no point during those hearings does the Navy mention that uh, this pipeline was was leaking. So I'm intrigued. So the emails that uh, you've uh, you have possession of, I mean, so did they then deliberately try to mislead um, the officials during that uh, hearing? Well, I I wouldn't necessarily go that far. What I know is that um, while these test results were coming in, Navy officials were really worried about the potential of this pipeline being a so-called active leak, basically being the culprit of the fuel release. Um, They were saying that if that news got out, um, activist organizations would use it to to advance their, quote, anti-Red Hill narrative. This, This pipeline is connected to the Red Hill tanks that we've all heard a lot about, um, they hold millions of gallons of fuel um, near the Halava Correctional Facility, um, and those tanks sit above our, our drinking water aquifer. Um, the pipelines are connected um, to 
to the Red Hill facility and lead down to Pearl Harbor with the force of gravity. So the whole system is on the same permit. And so um, a problem with the pipeline at Pearl Harbor, they were worried would threaten the permit for the whole thing. And then the status of, of that hearing, uh, I know I think there, there's been a recommendation that the permit be granted, but uh, where is that? I mean, will this new information, do you think, jeopardize uh, the issuing of that permit? We're going to have to wait and see. Um, the Sierra Club, which is uh, a party in the contested case hearing and is hoping that the Department of Health does not issue the permit, they're definitely going to make this an issue and already have spoken out. Um, ultimately, the, the final materials from all parties involved are due October 20th. Um, and then after that, oral arguments will be made and Department of Health Director uh, Dr. Libby Char will decide whether the Navy gets its permit. Um, the Department of Health didn't uh, agree to an interview for this story, so I don't know where they're at. Well, it's fascinating because I did uh, file an open records uh, request uh, earlier this summer to get information about those leaks in Pearl Harbor, and I was denied. Uh, uh, and uh, I was right. told that I could uh, FOIA the, the military uh, to try and get the information released. Right, and that often takes a really long time. You know, for this story, what I was able to get was only brought to light um, thanks to a very brave source who um, shared documents with me, including those emails. And, um, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have known that this leak um, was known to the Navy as early as January, and they didn't report those failed test results to the Department of Health until May. Yeah, well, we'll have to see uh, where this uh, ripple takes us. Uh, you know, uh, if you know there was a cover-up, uh, I mean, we'll have to, uh, I guess, press the officials. But good job uh, getting the information. Oh, I appreciate that. All right. um, the Navy did say, you know, at the time they were still investigating the source of the leak. Um, but according to Department of Health standards, they had enough to know that the pipeline was the problem. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, read her full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community with a reimagination of its antiquity and the body gallery, featuring a new soundsuit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. HonoluluMuseum.org. You may have heard the news today that the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to two journalists, Russian Dmitry Muratov and Maria Ressa, who is the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Rappler.com in the Philippines. You may recall that Maria was a guest on The Conversation two years ago, not long after she was named one of Time Magazine's Persons of the Year for her work in fighting for press freedom. In February 2019, she spoke with HPR's news director, Bill Dorman, who was a colleague of hers at CNN and who has also done projects in the Philippines with Rappler.com. She started the interview talking about the relationship between the media in the Philippines and the government of President Rodrigo Duterte. Clear there's abuse of power in this and that the state's resources are behind the kind of political intimidation and harassment that I, I didn't really feel as much when we were with CNN, right? But uh, it's a brave new world. And all of this is partially enabled by technology, the kind of uh, social media propaganda machine that the government has had, as well as uh, 
the law, you know, other resources of the government that it's bringing to bear on uh, against reporters. It's it's a kind of kind of a crazy time right now. <laughs> You were in the Philippines at the, the fall of Marcos, the rise of Cory Aquino uh, revolution in the Philippines. It's unfair to ask in terms of a comparison, but it's also a natural question. I mean, it's a little bit like back to the future, right? Uh, ironically, like the Sunday before the week, I, the week I was arrested, I was going back over um, the FOIA documents in the United States and the CIA briefings for the president, the sitting president at that time. And I was reading the descriptions that they were giving about the Philippines shortly after martial law was declared. And what's fascinating to me, and I use this in one of my newsletters, is that if you take the words that they were using to describe the situation and to describe the reaction of the people that in many instances, even in 1973, that Filipinos actually welcomed martial law because they felt it was a restoration of uh, law and order. Right? It's the same narrative that's being used today that it is that the government must have a strong hand, that it needs to be, uh, that, that this drug war is necessary. It's, it's also admitted to the brutal killings of thousands of Filipinos. And what is the broader sense about the environment for news in the Philippines? What's life like in your newsroom day to day? Gosh, there's no one thing. I think, you know, it's like, in many instances, depends on the escalation of government uh, actions. And what we do is we'll try to get ahead of it. We're still doing the stories. I think that's the most important part. We need to stay focused because all of these actions are meant to take our focus away from our jobs. And that's really my question. What is the government? Why is the government so afraid of the truth? Why is the government afraid of accountability that it would uh, go through such legal acrobatics to try to silence our voice. It's very clear online that there are government-sponsored, um, state-sponsored online hate, and that is directed against us. I think that's the newest thing from the 70s to today is how you can use social media to make a lie a fact, right? So I'll give you an example. Um, two or three days ago, uh, one of the the forces sympathetic to President Duterte, one of the accounts said that I had Indonesian parents. Uh, and it just rippled because re whether it was true or not didn't matter. Uh, it's not true, by the way. I was based in Jakarta for CNN for a decade. But here's the interesting thing. A classmate of mine from college, someone I knew in the United States, actually asked me if my parents were Indonesian because it had reached them. So a lie told in one country today, a lie told by one account, if amplified enough, can actually ripple like it's the truth, right? And that is the biggest challenge for democracies all around the world. How do you distinguish fact from fiction? And I think the key thing here is to continue doing the stories, to show the abuse of power, to show the weaponization of social media and the law against perceived enemies of the government. These are lies. They shouldn't be allowed to happen. And, and by doing that, just by the fact that we exist, I hope that that's enough, right, for people to stop being silent. Um, we're not politicians. I'm waiting to hear from politicians. We are journalists. So we will continue doing our jobs. Now I have to trust our society will take the information we're giving them and do the right thing. Hold our government to account. 
we got a global cheering section. Maria Ressa, founder, CEO, editor-in-chief of Rappler.com, arrested last week by the Philippine government, out on bail. My friend, you take care of yourself, Maria. Thank you, Bill. That was HPR's Bill Dorman talking two years ago on The Conversation with Maria Ressa of Rappler.com. Ressa today was announced as one of two journalists awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And we gazed upon the times of freedom flashing. Support for HPR comes from UHM Kennedy Theater. Mele, Hula, and Oli tell the story of Hey Leo Aloha in Olelo, Hawaii, on now streaming online from the stage. More by searching Kennedy Theater. You know, here on The Conversation, one of the things we look to bring you every week is genuinely interesting conversations with local people in important positions. We had the opportunity to talk with John DeFries, head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, earlier this summer. He's the first Native Hawaiian in the driver's seat of HTA, and we were intrigued to learn he was born and raised in Waikiki. There are hopes he can bring a sensitivity to the post because of that perspective. We began our conversation on the Diamond Head side of Waikiki at the end of a tiny street that some 70 years ago he called home. He shared his memories of the area as we dodged delivery vans and mopeds. So we're standing here on Cartwright, right where your house used to be. <laughs> so tell us about that. 551 Cartwright Road, which today there is a what amounts to be an equivalent of a four-story apartment complex, which at one time our family home was here. So um, it was myself, I had two younger brothers at that time, my parents, a bunch of uncles. It was a pretty substantial house. And, and I would imagine there were at least like 12 adults in there on two different floors including my parents and um, and so this was you know front yard we had an emu I, I can recall a lot of social events here and uh, it served as kind of a family hub and, and the emu you know was my grandfather's pride and joy and was used quite often people from the neighborhood could hear it they could smell it and then a couple of them would bring their ethnic dish to put in the emu. And, uh, but this was very local. I mean, there were, we had Japanese neighbors, Chinese, Portuguese, Samoan, Hawaiian, you know, and people talk about international conferences and conventions that come to Hawaii. And I said, you know, on Cartwright Road, it was like an international convention. Today we're standing here in this lot. There's high rises down high either rises. end. Yeah, there was nothing at that time more than two stories, right? And I can remember on Lemon Road, a apartment complex. So what for me as a child was watching the first kind of high rise and maybe it was seven or eight floors, you know, and uh, and I thought it was bigger than life. Uh, but here we are. What? 69 years later. Well, you've got mopeds, you've got delivery trucks, you've got yeah, you've got the Hyatt Hotel across the way. Uh, but you went to Jefferson Elementary School. I went to Jefferson Elementary. 
The school is about a block and a half from our home, so it's easy to walk to and from. Went there from kindergarten through the sixth grade. And then what was notable about the campus was there, it doesn't stand anymore, but there was a major administration building in the middle of the campus, principal's office, infirmary, that kind of. And my grandfather was the contractor who actually built it. Right. So our family has kind of deeply rooted in in Waikiki in that sense. And uh, there are a lot of Hawaiian families. I mean, uh, the Kalima family, the Jesse Kalima family, uh, were music notables were there. And there was a famous steel guitar player and composer named Johnny Alameda. Yes. Very, very... Uh, prolific uh, composer. He lived there too, and there was a period of about a year where I took steel guitar lessons from him. So, you know, Waikiki, at, think about it now, within a thousand yard radius from where we lived, you had the beach, of course, you had the zoo, you had the aquarium, you had the Queen Surf nightclub, and then there was a polo field in the middle of Kapiolani Park. And where the tennis courts are today at Diamond Head was a horse stables, which then moved to Waimanalo to make way for the, the tennis. And then you also had a golf driving range. You had Waikiki Shell, the fire department, the library. You had recreational boating at that time in the Alawai. So for a young kid growing up, I mean, you know, it was like Disneyland. Um, you know, in addition to what was happening in the Eva direction as hotels were beginning to, uh, to be built. So, you know, when I think about Waikiki in that sense, in that those from birth to 11, um, it, holds a very special place actually um, and, and it's ironic that I'm kind of like back here right after 30 years in Kona um, so it goes it feels like full circle to me well you shared with me that uh, you were Mayday King at, at the elementary school <laughs> Mr. Aloha I mean you're kind of doing the same thing <laughs> Actually, in the second grade and in the sixth grade. So pe people say, how do you get it in the second grade? I said, maybe I was the biggest guy on the campus in the second grade, too. But no, I, yeah, that was part of the whole cultural, you know, thing. So, you know, what was big then when I was growing up was uh, wrestling, local wrestling. And, uh, and one guy who was very... Uh, well-known was a guy named Lord Tallyho Blears. And he had a daughter named Laura, 
who was in my second grade class and then ended up at Punahou and we both graduated together. So Laura and I have known each other a long time. Her son Dylan Ching is the executive in charge of TS restaurants, which includes Dukes on the beach. He's still a part of Waikiki. He's still a big part of Waikiki, as was his grandfather, uh, Lord Blears. And then I believe the family moved out to Makaha. They were a big surf family as well. So yeah, those are kind of the things that come to mind back then. You know, I th the point I want to make is that it was a, a very local neighborhood, you know, and I, when I think about the visitor experience today as compared to that early period, you know, and I've read a number of studies that talk about the fact that, you know, Waikiki in some ways has lost a kamaina charm because there are no local families in in that fabric, right? And, uh, but I can remember a time when there was. And that was HTA President and CEO John DeFries reminiscing about his time growing up in Waikiki. That was just part of a conversation that we had with him. We were teasing you with that. I'm going to strongly encourage that you uh, listen to the extended interview on our website. Uh, there will be links online later today. And next week, we talk about green energy and aquaculture. The conversation is produced by Savannah Harriman Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. Our theme music is courtesy of Gypsy 808. Join us on Monday for more of the conversation.